the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding. Welcome to Podcast Care of Cooper Cherry, or perhaps uh, maybe changing the name to the machinic unconscious happy hour at some point just due to, um, I guess, what is it? Search SEO purposes, but I'm really excited today to have uh, Dr. Greg Sadler joining me uh, on the podcast. Uh, Dr. Sadler, currently an adjunct professor at Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design, editor of Stoicism Today, producer of the Half Hour Hegel series, president of his local SOFIA, which is Society of Philosophers in America chapter, um, but you might be more familiar with Greg from his YouTube channel, Gregory, Gregory B. Sadler, with over 75,000 subscribers. So, Greg, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So, the, first, I wanted to just ask how you kind of, how did you stumble upon the podcast out of curiosity? So, that's that's kind of funny. I uh, When I saw that we were going to talk about that, I... I thought, well, how, how did I actually? <laughs> so I think what it is is we are we have similar circles in Twitter. Okay. And I think I saw that you you'd posted about somebody else that you'd interviewed, and I was like, oh, that looks like an interesting thing. And I reach out to to podcasts every once in a while along those lines. I, I usually, you know, I'm, this is not a, a particularly rational way of doing things. But I'll say, well, if, if, you know, it was good enough for this person, I'm sure it's good right. enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I think that's how it happened. And so I, I went through and, and tried to look in my, um, I looked in SoundCloud and I looked at Twitter and I was trying to figure out exactly. Um, I know I reached out to you in SoundCloud and that's all I could, I could figure out. So I don't have a good answer for you, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I was just curious. You're the first person who's actually, I think, organically, um, hit me up about coming on the show. So kind of a milestone well, for me, actually. That's, that's either a sign that you're doing a great job in reaching <laughs> out to people or that you're, you're just not at the point yet where you're get, you know, getting that many listens, but that'll, yeah. that'll come, I'm sure, before right. too long. And, and then you have, you know, you've got these time management issues of like deciding whether you want to give attention to this person or this right. person or this person. Yeah, that's one of the things that comes with, getting uh getting internet famous right not famous famous but now i saw i think you posted the other day that you were just celebrating kind of a milestone in terms of you've been doing your youtube stuff since what like was it 2012 2013 2011 yeah 2011 yeah um so not quite 10 years but you know close enough to call it a decade uh shaving a little bit off yeah, it's and you know it's 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 uh, kind of gratifying to see. You mentioned you know seventy five thousand subscribers to the YouTube channel, which compared to like a makeup tutorial channel, that's nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but for and even you know for for popular philosophy channels, it's it's not that much. But I, I do videos that are 
more in depth and they're not they're not high production they're they're not very glitzy they're they're oriented towards like understanding what Hume is actually saying or or Nietzsche is actually saying and so you know what's good about that is and, and I'm sure you're experiencing that with with your own stuff if you're putting out like quality content the the people that you get following you they're going to stick around yeah. And they're going to they're gonna talk to other people. It's not like becoming a big flash in the pan and getting a million viewers all of a sudden, 99% of which aren't going to stick around or watch your stuff next year. So, so it's been, you know, constantly building. And it took a while to, I, I've learned a lot of things through trial and error, a lot right. of error. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. same thing. I mean, I, like I was mentioning that I've been considering changing the podcast title just because even though I like podcast to me is it's a great title. It just, it doesn't really work for the search. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, you know what I mean? If you search podcast, you know, logically you make sense, but no, not in the terms of the way that uh, search engines operate. Yeah. I think that that's a, a perfectly reasonable thing to do. There's, you know, there, there's words that have, originally if we could have gotten in on them on the ground floor, it would be amazing. But, they're now so heavily used that, um, you know, it, they're, they're no longer effective for anybody except in the top 10%. I had had originally, so this would, this would be like the second time I've changed the podcast name, sadly, because I was originally the 21st century schizoid podcast. Okay. But I found, uh, so I had invited someone and they said that um, schizoid was offensive, like it was ableist against people that suffer from schizophrenia. So I was like, well, I don't know that I agree, but I still, you know, if that's going to be a barrier to someone participating on the show, it's not yeah. worth having the, you know what I mean? That makes sense. I mean, it's interesting because the, the schizoid isn't schizophrenia. Um, and so they mixed them up. It was a term that was used a lot. Like you, you read like uh, Philip K. Dick books and he'll have people diagnosing each other as, as having schizoid personality. Uh, that back then they didn't call it a disorder. They were still using the terms of neurosis and psychosis. Um, and it, it's kind of fallen out of a lot of use. You don't, you don't see it around anymore, right. you know? But uh, yeah, so I, I hate, <laughs> hate to change the name of the podcast twice, but I, I, I might have to. We'll see. I looked into changing the, the YouTube channel name, uh, Gregory B. Sadler, but then I realized that I had so many videos and so many links in different <laughs> places that it would just be yeah. a nightmare to go and track them down and, and change it. So I, I, I know you know, I'm just stuck with it. It would have been smart if I would have picked the word philosophy at the start <laughs> yeah. for SEO purposes. Oh yeah, but. right. Especially in 2011, you would have uh, you would have been like right on the on the cutting edge of things. So yeah, you know it's kind of funny. Um, so you know, you use Twitter a lot as well, and one of the people who um, I'm guessing you probably have about the same low estimate as as I do is Stephen Molyneux. Oh gosh. and he was <laughs> huge uh, about around the time that I got onto YouTube. And I remember I was at Fayetteville State University because I was still a full-time professor at that time. And um, I was looking to see, well, what's, what's available on YouTube for philosophy? And he would like come up in the top for everything. So I was like, well, I, I suppose I should watch this guy. And then I did. <laughs> and it was like, oh, my God, this is, this is terrible stuff. <laughs> you know? But, you know, it's, uh, he, he got in there early and, and established his, um, 
self-generating following, I guess. I don't, I don't really know that much about his followers because it's, it's stuff I kind of want to stay away from, but yeah, exactly. he, he certainly has a lot of them. Right. So. Way more than I do somehow. But yeah, I thought it was, I remember he, I don't know if you're aware of this guy, uh, shoot. Uh, he's like runs renegade mm-hmm. university. I forget what his name is, but he went on Molyneux show to talk about postmodernism and, they were talking about a, a tree and kind of like in the context of signifiers and signified and so forth. Okay. And so he was trying to explain to him, you know, like a, a tree doesn't really exist, but Molyneux didn't, he wasn't catching it either that or he was being completely disingenuous in terms of. Kind of well, I, th- I think Molyneux is, is one of those people who, and so this is, this is kind of a good Hegelian point. I think uh, Molyneux is one of those people who's really imprisoned by the particular ideological lens that he, he took for understanding things. And so, you know, he, like a lot of other people, um, not necessarily all on, on the right uh, as well, but, but in a lot of venues, he's got these, these shticks down, you know, like that's not an argument. Well, I mean, not everything has to be an argument, right. but that's, that's the, <clears throat> that's the format he needs things to be in. Or, you know, he, he throws around words like logic and reason and rationality and, and well, an argument. Um, but, when you, when you sort of push him on it, you find that it's, it's kind of a threadbare uh, conception of these things that he has, but that works really well for him because, you know, if you think about the fact that he can communicate very easily with people who already buy into some of his, his ideas uh, and then get reinforcement from it, that's, you know, that's going to uh, keep him doing that and provide him with the support that he needs, both financial and emotional and intellectual and, and a lot of people, I think, live their, their entire lives that way. They find a philosophical perspective that's relatively simple, and they just sort of, like, drive that, that proverbial vehicle into the ground. Now, you, you posted the other day, you're, you're a guy that goes to the gym and, and pumps iron, correct? Well, I work on the machines. I, I don't work on the machines. I don't do free, do free weights, weights anymore, no. which is which is funny because if I post about it, then I also get, I mean, you know, I, I so there's a bit of a side side note. I, I do these uh, videos that are sort of like um, responses to common comments or questions, and I uh, I did one the other day about why it's important to actually read, you know, the philosophical text and not just ask questions based on a video, because oftentimes the answers will actually be in Plato or, you know, Aristotle or whoever. And somebody chimed in immediately and started giving me advice about the background music on it. And one of the other ones I've been kicking around is um, I'm going to do a video this month about you know, people providing unsolicited and unwanted advice. And so any, anytime that I post about uh, being at the gym and, and doing uh, the exercise machines, I get all these gym bros who are like, that's not real lifting, man. You know, you've got to do free weights or you're going to destroy your body. And I'm like, I mean, first off, you know, I, I don't, I'm not looking for advice from anybody. So I don't know why you chimed in on this, but second, I know that's factually false. (laughs) And and I get, I get a lot of people giving me advice about um, diet and, you know, and you think about how irrational it is. They, they know nothing about my actual life. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give anybody uh, uh, 
advice about exercise or diet because I'm not a I'm not a specialist in that sort of thing. I mean, if they want to email me and ask me about who should I read after this person, okay, now I'm competent to say something. <laughs> but but even if it's like a trainer, well, who the hell asked them? Right. <laughs> this idea that like everybody should chime in about anything at any given moment is really kind of kind of weird. And I, I think it means that we're, you know, so again, we, we'll, we'll talk more about Hegel in a substantive way, but, you know, we're, we're really in a different period now because of the, uh, the internet. It's, it, it really has changed everything. And it's not just changing the ability for us to reach each other, like you being in Texas and me being in Milwaukee right now. And then, you know, people being able to listen to this worldwide, uh, potentially for, for decades. Um, it's also changed the ways people interact with each other and the assumptions that they have. So, and you don't have to be Hegelian, I think, to, to, to get that. You, you know, you could be a McLuhanite, right? You know, the, the, the medium becomes the message and it changes the way we do things. But it is something, it is something that, that uh, um, we do have to take into stock. We're, we're never going to be out of this era unless the entire worldwide internet goes down for, for a long time. So that's kind of an exciting period to be in too. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm a big Baudrillard guy too. So oh yeah, this, okay. Twitter in particular, I think, is super interesting to me to kind of delve into with that lens. How so? Uh, just because I think there. I mean, there's there's so much. I've even considered writing, um, kind of synthesizing Baudrillard and Lacan together in an analysis of of posting and I think specifically shit posting, which I don't know how okay. you know familiar you are with this, but oh, I mean, I, I get I plenty of it directed at me. I have an uh, anonymous account that I just kind of post all these really bizarre, <laughs> absurdist jokes. Uh, a lot okay. of times it's philosophy stuff too. Like I'll throw in some kind of joke about philosophy, you know what I mean? Just real kind of like niche, bizarre, uh, gross things. And yeah. uh, I don't know, there's kind of like a, there's a, a jouissance in that sure in i guess the uh just like the free play of language and i don't know there, there's a nugget well, and, there, and, but, and, and visual stuff too i mean because you can play off of both registers absolutely um and i think yeah memes definitely also play into this kind of weird simulative universe that i think Baudrillard would just absolutely love i wish he was still alive to see twitter and to see trump and i just think he's kind of laughing his ass off wherever he is, you know, <laughs> and what we're going through. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole notion of the hyper real, I mean, he was, he was originating that and then it got a lot of traction because of the, the Gulf war. But you think about all these beefs that people have um, on Twitter that become very public very quickly and it's through replication uh, because, you know, you've got the, the, the reposting feature right. and you can do it in a couple different ways. Um, we, we, I mean, if you want to, we can talk a little bit more substantively about that, that later. But um, you also have now the, the major media for about, you know, like the last, say, eight, nine years, caring an awful lot about what happens in this weird world of Twitter, as if it's somehow representative of... Um, say American politics in general, right. you know? So if the, twi if the Twitter people don't like it, there must be something going on there. If the Twitter people are like digging into something, oh, there must be a story. Um, and then they'll, you know, they'll just like have a news thing in traditional uh, video format and they'll post a tweet there. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's a weird time. It's just 
crazy time. And I think Trump is actually a, he funnily, he really understands Twitter super well because you'll notice it's like, he never replies really to anybody. He just posts, he doesn't like do engagement. And I think sometimes that's, that's kind of what I, I guess I'll reply to friends and, and stuff like that. But yeah, you know, um, today I was, you know, I, I'm on Twitter every day and I was looking at stuff today about the Iowa caucuses coming up and Sanders pulling ahead and somebody had an interesting tweet. I don't remember who it was or exactly what the substance of it was, but it was something along the lines of um, Sanders is going to win Iowa and then people are going to super come after him and he's not really going to give a shit and he'll just sort of like keep doing what he does and that is going to pay off for him. The fact that he's going to get attacked but not immediately get mired in, in responses. To right. And Which is the smart, I think Trump has displayed that's the way to engage with this kind of. Work. Yeah. And, and, and that, you know, and it's interesting. So, so Trump does that and, and Trump does it because in, in essence, Trump doesn't really stand for much of anything other than uh, this. I mean, Trump is, is a perfect sort of like postmodern uh uh, thing because he do, he doesn't actually stand for anything. He's a, he's a bit you know uh, a rich man who's not rich. He's uh, you know he gets portrayed by his followers as this real tough guy, but he's really kind of a, a weakling. And he's you know he portrays himself as being brilliant, but he's clearly not. And so he's he's this empty signifier that people have invested with with all of this stuff. And even the like anti-immigrant things and racism and uh, support the blue line stuff that he's he's been saying. Um, he, I don't think he really believes much of that, but he realized early on about 10 yeah. years ago that that stuff would really catch on. Right. And so you've got this, you, you do have this character who um, will say just about anything and does also seem to be rather touchy. Um, he will, he will <laughs> lash out. He has no emotional control. Um, and he, and he seems to resist anybody handling him too, which is kind of a problem. And, and then somehow he, you know, he got in position and all the other Republicans had to orient themselves like stars in a constellation around him. So now they don't believe in any, anything either <laughs> other than holding on to power. So you got that going on and, and it's a successful strategy. Um, you know, he probably does have at any given time, uh, about 30 to 40% of the American population behind him and then you got Sanders who he can he can have a similar strategy of well I don't really give a shit what these people say because I've got other things to focus on and he has genuine things to focus on he's been saying the same thing sort of like you know people used to make fun of Socrates and they'd say oh Socrates you, you just say the same thing over and over and over again and Socrates would say or they'd say you talk about the same stuff over and over and over again and he'd say yeah and I actually say the same things about it meaning that there's consistency there and Sanders worked out for himself early on what it is that he actually believed in, and he just kept keeps hammering away at that. And I, I think that's part of why people, you know, believe him. You can yeah. you can watch old video of him from when he was the mayor of Burlington, and it's the same it's the same things he's saying. But there's also a you can tell that the guy can connect with other human beings. He's genuinely interested in them. If he disagrees with them, he'll say, oh, "I disagree with you on this," and da 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 da. And then you know, if somebody gets mad at him, he's like, "Oh, you know, you don't have to get mad. It's just you know, we're talking things out." And um, so it's you know you've got two very different kinds of characters 
And I think that, yeah, I mean, this, this is way off topic at this point, but I think that the only kind of candidate who will be successful in going against Trump is is somebody like Sanders. It, will, it definitely won't be Biden. It won't be Buttigieg. You know, it won't be Warren. It'll be somebody who can just represent, this is kind of Hegelian, somebody who can represent an idea, a concrete, robust idea and can can mobilize people around that who aren't typically being viewed as part of the constituency. So, you know, for example, independents like myself, I'm, I'm a registered independent. Um, I have, you know, I, I can easily see myself voting for Sanders in part because I intend to vote against, you know, whoever is going to run uh, against Trump. But, um, you know, I, I would reluctantly vote for some, but Sanders, even though I don't agree with him on quite a few things, um, I could I could see, you know, voting for him and supporting him. And I think there's a lot of other people, you know, there, there's people like, well, you know, he'll take the left. And then what about the center? I think there's a lot of people in the center who are like, man, I'm really sick of this nonsense. And some of them did vote for Trump and they're like, man, I, w- I was sick of nonsense before. And so I voted for the dark horse crazy guy and look what we got. <laughs> you know, maybe we vote for a different, uh, uh, you know, alternative this time. Um, and I, I think if they, if they go the other route and they take a more, you know, establishment Democrat candidate, they lose to Trump again. Oh yeah. E- even, even with all the, the, you know, the rancor that Republicans have managed to generate, um, I don't, I don't think they'll get the turnout. So it's, it's in, you know, I, I don't think the DNC kind of really gets the message, but. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. So um, that, that's a bit of a rant. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Um, no, that's, that's interesting. I think, uh, actually, I think it was on a, maybe I saw some posts last night that said, Bill Maher, and I'm assuming it was on, I think his show does air on Friday nights on HBO real time. And he was saying, and this goes back to kind of the online phenomenon is uh, he was saying that one thing about Bernie Sanders is he's got the, the supporters that will, he called them bad motherfuckers that would get out on the streets. Well, (laughs) yeah. And I I think that's, that's true. Um, I mean, it's not as if the democratic establishment doesn't have that when they need it. You know, you think about like union goons or stuff like that. Um, but there aren't that many of them. And, and there, there are a lot of really devoted Sanders supporters. So and I, I just think, too, his ethos, um, it, it is something like a Hegelian idea. Um, it's, it can motivate people. They can, they can see something of not just, they're not seeing themselves in him. It's not a narcissistic sort of thing. Uh, maybe it is for some Bernie bros, you know, they, 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 but that, then they could be for anybody and it's just slotting somebody else in. I think it's that they, they see him talking about the things that really matter to people in ways that are simple, but are not simplistic. So like think about universal healthcare. Um, a lot of these other candidates on the democratic side, they just don't get that coming out with these really wonky, well, you know, we can tweak it a little bit this way and a little bit this way. Uh, we can't really afford to, to shift to anything radical, you know, but it's not that radical. All we have to do is look overseas to any of the European countries or to Australia or to look up, up north to Canada. We can see that universal healthcare is something fairly easy to, to pull off if you want to, if there's political will for it. And, um, 
you know, Sanders is, is communicating that effectively or, or the notion of the rich should pay their fair share of taxes and corporations should do so as well. I think a lot of people respond to that. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I'm old enough to remember when Reagan was running and Reagan was running against a Carter who was really um, handicapped by the Iran crisis and the, the hostage, you know, uh, taking and then the failure of the, the rescue attempt. And there was some serious inflation and, and some other economic issues. Um, and he ran as the candidate of hope. Um, and I, I, you know, I remember what that was like. And if, granted, it was a very different time. We didn't have a 24-hour news cycle at that time. We certainly didn't have the internet. So, you know, it'd be in Time Magazine <laughs> instead, you know, or the newspaper, but the people talking about it. And I think Bernie can inspire that sort of thing. Again, I don't see the, I don't see the other candidates able to do that. Right. I, I definitely agree. You know, it's funny. I'm, are you familiar with uh, Murray Bookchin at all? Mm. I don't think so. What is it? So Bookchin, Murray Bookchin, an American, uh, he's well-known kind of, I don't know if he, if it's, he's kind of an anarchist, but even beyond that, he's like an eco, uh, what's the word? Like he has this whole idea of like libertarian municipalism and he kind of started out as like this mm. Marxist Leninist guy who became kind of an anarchist and then even, I guess you might say post-anarchist. But so he was active in actually Burlington at the same time that I think Bernie was maybe mayor of the city or something like okay. that. So he had even wrote, he wrote like a polemic against, against Bernie. And I think there may be even be video somewhere of Bookchin kind of uh, <laughs> going at Sanders, which I think is really funny. I'd like to, I'd like to like hear what Bernie has to say about Bookchin in particular coming, yeah. coming after him. Cause like, yeah, he's kind of this, um, I don't know. He became really popular and kind of these online circles, like the kind of mantra of um, Google Murray Bookchin was a thing for a while. Okay. Kind of a meme type thing, but whenever yeah. people would kind of ask like, what's anarch what's anarchism like Google Murray Bookchin. And I think yeah, it, may, I, it may have even been a podcast that this originated from, but. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I'm not that, I'm not that up on a lot of anarchist literature. I mean, you know, I read Wolf and in, in college and, the earlier, you know, writers, but it's, it's not something that, I mean, and I got plenty of it through reading Ursula K. Le Guin, who's, who's very, who was very devoted to it, but that's, it's not, it's not a particular um, specialty of mine. So, yeah. Yeah. He, he's actually pretty Hegelian himself. So he has, it's like the dialectic ecology or, or something like that was his thing. Okay. But I think he, he picked up on that from his, like you said, he was kind of a Marxist-Leninist when he was younger. And so I think he carried that sort of Hegelian inspiration on throughout the course of his life and what have you. Yeah. Well, should we jump into Hegel yeah, stuff? Yeah, let's, let's definitely do that. Um, so so like, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that I, uh, you know, I tried to read a little bit of the intro and the, uh, the preface to the phenomenology and uh, it was, of course, it's notoriously difficult for one yeah. thing. So, <laughs> well, you know, so let's let's actually start out with like reading suggestions because sure, I think a lot of people today they they think the phenomenology is the place to start, right? And it definitely is not. Um, 
And then if they don't think the, the phenomenology is because they're, you know, they're not sufficiently masochistic, they think the science of logic <laughs> is the place to go. And that is even tougher. Um, people have asked me, like, you know, after you get done with the half-hour Hegel series uh, on the phenomenology, how about doing the science of logic? And I'm like, somebody else can do that. You know? <laughs> I've, already, I've already put in enough. Enough Hegel, had, right? Yeah. Um, as somebody else who's actually Hegelian or, or uh, you know, a, a full-time Hegel scholar, because I'm, I'm neither of those. Um, I'm just somebody who, who likes Hegel quite a bit. Um, so, you know, one of the, the books that I think is particularly good to start with, and it's not, it's not easy, but it's, it's certainly a hell of a lot easier than the phenomenology, is the lectures on the philosophy of history. Um, one reason is because in the phenomenology, Hegel doesn't name names. He, does, he never tells you, except at a very few points, who the hell he's talking about. So you have to kind of, you have to know a lot of background information or rely on commentators to tell you, okay, here he's targeting Rousseau, or here he's got Kant in mind, or here he's talking about um, Sophocles' Antigone. Um, with looking at the philosophy of history, you get a lot of the, you get to see what he's doing um, with, you know, sometimes Hegel actually does do the Hegelian three-step that, that gets attributed to him by, by, largely by the Marxists of, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, which is not always in there. That's, that's not the, the dialectic per se, but that's, that's what a lot of people have made of it. But in, in the philosophy of history, he often does that. And uh, the other thing that's particularly good as a starting point is, um, you flip it around the history of philosophy lectures because there you get to see what he's making, what he's drawing out of these different philosophical positions through time up, up to him and what he takes as being really important, what their contributions are. So that I think you read those two things and that'll take a while, but you get a good sense of what Hegel's project is, you know, some of the grand themes like the development of freedom through history and its expansion or um, how something tends to produce its opposite. And then, you know, um, it has to come to terms with that or how, you know, ideas have to become practical and be realized and in the process. They, they show themselves as uh, something other than what you started with. All those ideas are there in those, those, those lectures. And then after that, I think going to the phenomenology becomes a hell of a lot easier. <laughs> but a lot of people, you know, because they've been told the phenomenology is the place to go, they, they get themselves a copy of, you know, I've got Miller's, uh, you know, translation here, which is the one that I use. There's a couple new translations out. And they're, they're good. Um, but Hegel's very difficult to translate. And uh, sometimes he's like really on and it's, it's like totally great reading him. And other times you're like, so other times you're like, what the hell is this crap? Right. And that, that could be because you don't understand what's going on. And then there's other places in the work where your response of what the hell is this crap is totally dead on because he's wrong. <laughs> you know? So you have to, you know, you have to kind of piece together what, what he's, he's doing in order to make sense of that. And then the other thing I'll say, and I know you wanted to talk about the master slave dialectic. When you look at the phenomenology, um, the master-slave dialectic, or the dialectic of, of um, lordship and bondage is how it's called in, in uh, earlier translations, it is just a tiny, tiny little bit of the, um, the entire thing. So 
I'll show you like visually and then we can sort of, we can explain this for your, your viewers. So here's the book. Here's the master slave <laughs> dialectic. Just these, you know, seven pages, odd maybe. pages. Yeah. And then here's the rest of the book. So here's <laughs> what comes before it. Here's what comes after it. Here's the rest of the self-consciousness section which all every every portion of which is longer than the master slave dialectic um the master slave dialectic got used as if it's like the stand-in for everything and it's just a, it's just a starting point for for what's going on in the phenomenology um one one key idea that does get introduced is that of recognition on air canon in in german and that runs throughout all of hegel's work he thinks that we as human beings are are looking for recognition of our own self um, from ourself we need to be able to understand who and what we are and where we fit in and we're also engaged with others other self-consciousnesses trying to get that recognition that we can't provide ourselves with and in the master-slave dialectic, it's totally screwed up, right? The master subordinates the slave to making nice things for him and peeling grapes and putting them in his mouth or whatever we want to picture, you know, from ancient uh, videos of, or not videos, movies of ancient Rome, right? Um, but that's a totally unsuccessful resolution because the slave cannot provide the recognition that the master is looking for. Neither can the slave get the recognition that, that he or she is striving for. And so that's why we have further and further developments in the dialectic. Um, so, I don't know, that was kind of a long-winded answer <laughs> to something. Um, I think I lost the, the, the train. No, I, I think we're trying to sort of figure out where to, where to begin with. Oh. Hegel, and I don't know if it makes sense. Maybe well, that's apt because <laughs> Hegel says, right in the preface, he says, oh, you can't really do a preface of a philosophical work, and right. where should we begin, and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, you have to just kind of just jump into it. That, that's another thing I'll say, too, and this, this goes not just for Hegel, but for other um, philosophical thinkers and texts. There's no, like, recipe for how to approach them so like let's say you did read the phenomenology first and then you go to these other it's not like you damaged your brain in the process right you know um you, you just you're going to get more out of it the next time around people are always like writing and saying okay so which which plato book do i have to read first I, whatever you got close yeah. at hand you know and um you know, do I have to read things chronologically? I mean, it, sometimes it helps, but you don't have to. Imagine you're going to reread anything that you read the first time a number of times before you get much out of it. And, and I think there's, there's so many people that have this anxiety that they have, to, they have to read things in the right order or they have to um, have mastered something else. So, so like, you know, with Hegel, oh, if you haven't read Kant before reading Hegel, you're going to be totally lost. That reading Kant before reading Hegel isn't going to be that helpful. Um, I mean, you could say that reading Aristotle is just as helpful for understanding Hegel because Hegel, you know, is, is kind of drawing, you know, dialectic is, right. is an Aristotelian thing first. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I just want to encourage listeners to not place this this burden on themselves that that often produces an anxiety that gets in the way of being able to actually read and and understand and appreciate the texts of thinking that there's a there's a right way to do it there there isn't really a right way i mean there's there's wrong readings 
you know, if you read the master-slave dialectic and somehow you think it's about maraschino cherries, obviously something went wrong somewhere. <laughs> but, you know, it could apply to maraschino cherry picking and, and pickling and, and the distribution processes and, you know, who, who gets terrible wages and who doesn't in the process. There, that could make some sense. But um, there you're doing some application work. So, yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my, like, stump speech about not getting in your own way when you're, when you're reading stuff. Right. Yeah. There, see there, are, I guess personally, there are two thinkers that I think very much influenced by Hegel. One very sort of, I think anti-Hegelian and the other very much a Hegelian. One of those being on, on the positive side, Jacques Lacan, who I yeah. think in particular master slave uh, dialectic has a lot of resonance with, with his work and trying to understand his work and realizing, first of all, like I don't think a lot of people get how Hegelian he really is in terms of his project. And even though he, I don't even know if he would directly make that claim, but as you read him, I think it becomes pretty, and I've heard other scholars like reference that he, he's certainly very Hegelian in terms of his project. Yeah. You know, and he's, he's Hegelian in a number of different ways. So one of, one of them that I think often gets overlooked is you could say in terms of, um, method <clears throat> and you know it's so it's called the phenomenology of spirit right and and Hegel's phenomenology is not precisely the same thing as Heideggerian or Husserlian phenomenology the, the movement that, that comes out later um, or the other many different things that are like phenomenology like what Bergson is doing or Maurice Blondel who's called the French Hegel uh, was was doing around the turn of the century um, but one of the things that is core to any phenomenology is you've got to actually look at things. You've got to like see what's there and then make some attempt to do some comparative work and try to isolate out what's, what's essential. And you can do this in a very static way where you're like, well, okay. Like, if, if, I don't know if you've ever read Husserl, but he's mind-numbingly boring <laughs> much of the time. And uh, I know you'll probably take some grief from somebody for that. But That's what I always say about Kant, so don't. <laughs> well, I actually like Kant, but Kant is, so here's a little bit of digression. We'll come back. Kant is, is difficult because he's writing in this weird code that you have to crack. And, and then once you've done it, you can be like, oh yeah, that's what he's talking about. That's what he's saying. And it's kind of fun to see how all the different parts cohere with each other. And then also to see where things still don't make sense. Like when he's discussing the faculty of desire in um, the second critique, it's really interesting stuff, but you come away from reading it. Even if you understand your Kant really well, you come away from reading it saying, he didn't really manage to actually tell us what the hell desire is. <laughs> it just, you know, we just kind of skate over it. But it's kind of fun to realize that. But so, so coming back to like Lacan, Hegel, and phenomenology, if, if you're engaging in psychotherapy, you have to be a good phenomenologist or you're simply taking ideas that you've got. This is what Lacan was criticizing many of the Freudians of his time about doing is you're just imposing these structures that you got from the master, you know, the, the great teacher Freud onto everybody else. And, you know, it's a similar, uh, you know, criticism that Deleuze and Guattari are making about you, you guys, you know, want to see the Oedipus complex everywhere. There's more that that's going on. Lacan himself in his, um, 
in his uh, seminars at one point says that the Oedipus complex, that's really just a Western thing. You know, it's not a universal complex everywhere. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure that it truly applies to all of us Westerners. Um, it's, it's just part of the symbolic order. And it has the sort of uh, cachet that, that, that we, we give it. So Lacan is criticizing his fellow um, Freudians and oftentimes getting ostracized in the process because Lacan could also be kind of a dick to them too. <laughs> just like, just to be a dick. You know, oh, he, yeah. he, it's great. So you back to shit posting. Lacan was doing shit posting, but he was doing it in the form of conference papers. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's why the, that's why the Acree are so hard to read because he, <laughs> he, he, you know, in the seminars, it's so much more clear what's going on in the Acree. He's like showing off how smart right. he is to everybody. Um, and he does have some good stuff in there, but you got to kind of peel away some of the, the uh, extra stuff. But he's, he's he, you know, he was interested in genuinely helping people to um, deal with whatever it was that it had screwed them up and to live a better life. So, you know, Hegel's interested in, the, in, in that sort of thing as well, not as a psychotherapist, but in terms of, you know, the development of human consciousness and, and culture. Um, at each point, <clears throat> we're always sort of unfinished. And each stage in, in the dialectic going through is something that isn't quite fully worked out, but the people at the time think that it is. And part of why they're screwed up is they, they, they globalize their local, you know, we'll use Hegel's frame of, of reference, their local gestalt, their local shape of consciousness into what, what is the, the case uh, everywhere. And so part of Lacan's practice and what he's teaching young practitioners to do in his seminars is how to get past that. Um, so how do you do that? Well, there isn't any like recipe or one size fits all thing. Hegelian dialectics by its very nature cannot be coded into something like an algorithm. So you always have to approach new situations um, and look at them carefully and you can say, well, okay, maybe, maybe this is like this previous dialectic that we saw before and we can actually <clears throat> import this into it. Or maybe there's something new going on here that we don't have a proper frame of reference for. So we've we got to be a little bit more careful and see whether we've, we can follow out what's, what's happening. And so I, I think Lacan saw the practice of psychotherapy in, in very similar ways. Yeah, Lacan, Lacan is someone that I have abs just tremendous admiration for. I feel like the last, probably the last year, I've been down this Hegel, uh, not a Hegelian, this Lacanian wormhole. Yeah. That I haven't quite gotten out of, but I find him just, even if I, even if you want to dismiss his actual practical, you know, Accountability or, or what happened? Well, he was or, effective, and and he he trained other people who were effective psychotherapists, and you can find practicing Lacanians today who are you know quite good. Um, so yeah, that was just a point. You don't you don't, you don't have to dismiss that yeah. that part. But you know, I think like there's the famous sort of Chomsky quote about Lacan being sort of this self-aware charlatan and so forth. And like you mentioned, he was kind of a dick. I, I think there's a really funny story you mentioned a little bit about Heidegger, but there's uh so Lacan and his wife go to visit the Heideggers like, yeah. And they, Lacan is kind of going off and off about something and something and Heidegger just sits there and never really responds and just 
just a really funny anecdote. And there's just some really hilarious anecdotes. There's a recent book. There's like a New York Times article that I'll have to share with you about some of these really funny Lacan stories about like he didn't want to ever stop for red lights and and things like that. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. That's, that is funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, there's even like the, one of the craziest ones is, so I think he had a, so he had two families at one point, one like his original family. And then he, I think ended up having another family with uh, Bataille's ex-wife, Sylvia. Mm. And they had children, but the two family, or at least at, for the kids, they weren't aware of one another until, one day Lacan drives by in a car and the kids see him and they wave, but Lacan just speeds off with his other family in the car. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bataille is somebody who is, who's very interesting. Oh too. yeah. I've, I've not had the opportunity to dig into his work, but definitely he, I've got a long he, list. Yeah. He's somebody who's very difficult to, to classify, right? <laughs> Cause people like to have, well, there's, from the you know the continental philosophy, there's the phenomenologists and the psychoanalytic people and the Marxists and this and that. And Bataille, I mean, he drew on, on Hegel quite a bit too. Bataille is somebody who just kind of like straddles all these different areas and takes what he wants from whatever of them <clears throat> and um, very, very much resists any sort of easy classification. Um, he's, he's somebody who... I remember reading in, in graduate school and saying back then I had the intention of becoming like, you know, just a traditional academic philosopher. I was like, this isn't somebody I'm ever going to be able to write on effectively. <laughs> you know? um, but he's a lot of fun to read and to think with. So I mentioned Lacan is kind of the first, he's the one that he's the Hegelian. Now my other influential an- oh, yeah. anti-Hegelian perhaps, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong here, would be one of the young Hegelians, uh, Max Stirner. Are you familiar? Oh, yeah, yeah, Stirner, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, I mean, it's interesting when you look at, um, however you translate it, the, you know, the ego in its own or the ego in its property or the unique in its property. Um, you can tell he's Hegelian because he loves to do things in triads, right? And there's this whole, I mean, a lot of the, the early part of the work is essentially Feuerbach kind of with, with Stirner's own uh, spin on it. And then he goes off into this, you know, over and over again, he keeps hammering away at the point that um, none, of this, none of this really matters for the genuine egoist the person who sees the, whatever you want to call it, the good as, as their own and refuses to be um, coded or identified. I mean, he doesn't use the word coded um, by, by all these other things that, that have developed in human culture. Um, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people too see Stirner as a, a, a real precursor of Nietzsche as well. He's making oh, a lot absolutely. Of yeah, and I, I definitely think. Um, I, I mean, he I, and I sort of situate myself a little bit in this uh, post-anarchist idea, which is drawing a lot from the post-structuralist. Yeah, so say some. Say something about that because anytime somebody uses a term like that, I picture a bunch of different things, and I don't know whether my imagination about that is 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 maps on to what what's actually going on under that well, label. It gets confusing because there's, for one thing, there's post-left anarchism and there's post-anarchism, which okay. I, even myself until fairly recently didn't see what the clear distinction was. But I think in terms of what post-left anarchism is more like 
the sort of anti-civilization that anarchist primitivists and so forth that's okay. post post left anarchism post post anarchism is more something that really Saul Newman has talked quite a bit about he wrote there's even a book post anarchism okay. from, from Saul Newman and I don't know, he's a really great writer but he is more so it's kind of a post structuralist take on anarchism and sort of rejecting primarily kind of the essentialist humanist elements of Kropotkin and some of the early anarchist thinkers and just kind of reevaluating anarchism at the in sort of the postmodern post-structuralist lens primarily. So, so then how would that actually work? I mean, anarchists have to live within societies that are definitely not anarchists that have all sorts of norms and institutions and things in play. So a, a, a post-anarchist of that sort would it have to do in how they, they relate to other people and, and they don't want to make any assumptions about a general human nature and they, they need to let people sort of like show them what they are or how, how does that actually play itself out? Oh, I mean, that's, that's a tough question to, to answer. I think that's something that I'm kind of trying to, to figure out. And I actually, I plan on eventually I'll have Saul on the show. So maybe that'll yeah, be an opportunity cool. to, to unearth that. But I think it's really, for me, it's specifically just looking at, you know, just looking at revolutions that have occurred in the past, whether they be anarchist or Marxist or whatever, and, and sort of seeing, okay, these are, here's why these projects failed. Or if we're trying to bring about a new social order, like here are the things that we, need to be cautious of or you know what I mean and kind of being aware of the limitations of, of like epistemology and, and, and things like that okay and sort of you know a very grand narrative and I think leaving a lot more open space and a lot more think leaving things in a bit more flux in terms of institutions and morality and things like that to where you're not so you want to have um, a certain amount of rigidity like a, some sort of structure but you don't want to be locked down into, into institutions that are, you know, cause I think for me, institutions become automatically conservative. And so I think it's trying to fight against these sort of instincts to just kind of remake the current, just to kind of upend the current order without really, really going to the very, like a, a very materialist approach yeah. like going down to like, literally like the material elements of, of language and ideology and how, oppression and power are built into them. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's different kinds of conservatism. Um, and so you can, you can have like, you know, we talked about the DNC earlier, right? The DNC from a certain sense of, of the term conservative is a particularly successful conservative institution. It, it's devoted to certain progressive causes right? And programs and, and also against other versions of, of conservatism. But it, it becomes a whole set of um, both, you know, sort of governing assumptions and alliances and ways in which power gets used, like who gets funded, who doesn't get funded, or, or media attention, or, you know, what the talking points for the, the day are and all that sort of stuff. And, and it, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the pro progressive movements themselves can become 
conservative in the sense that they're 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 going to continue to move in the same direction. And and we also see that like I mean this is one of the things that's happened with with the Trumpization of the Republican Party is the party now effectively doesn't stand for much of anything other than funding certain uh, interest groups and activities and keeping taxes for, for certain people low and, and uh, resisting certain things and, and being uh, anti-immigrant or, or racist in, in, in certain ways. The, the things that, that conservatives with a different kind of sense of, of the term we're standing for has, has, I think, effectively driven, either driven a lot of uh, previous uh, members out of the party or driven those people to um, reconfigure their, not just their, their words and their, their ideas, but their very uh, frameworks in order to be able to somehow see the current uh, GOP as actually conservative. Um, so yeah, I, you know, and then, this is just American politics, and we could take all sorts of other examples as well, right? Um, but I, I think there's 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 definitely something to that. I guess the question that that we always have to face is, what's being conserved, and at what cost, and with you know with what effects, and at whose expense, you know. And I think maybe this is one area where Hegel offers something to the recognition that in sort of that relationship and in, in, in the contradictions, like there is, there's perhaps a functional aspect or there's a need that's being served within the other. Okay. So like if we're using Republic or conservatives, liberal, for example, or conservatives, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, communists or what have you as, as a dialectical example. So there is something, there's a logic, there's a, that is, drawing people to it, right? Like there is some functional aspect within Trumpism, like there's a need that's being served oh, yeah. there. So there's something to understand rather than throw out that entire side of the dialectic, which I think maybe is where an area where like someone myself who is not particularly Hegelian, um, that's kind of where my perhaps weakness is, is overlooking the potentiality. Like there's some nugget of truth or there's some nugget of function Within you know, the other. I, that, that's interesting. I, I think that a lot of people were drawn to Trump in the election because they're like, well, he actually says the stuff that nobody will, nobody will say. And I think that function got exhausted pretty quickly. So I think, I think you're, you're right there, that there was some, some need that was, was not being met. Um, and it was, it was not being met, I think, in large part because of how the DNC had carried out its, its uh, sort of christening of, of Clinton as their, their candidate. Um, but it wasn't anything that was going to, I mean, you see, so this is, this is kind of a broader topic. You see all this soul searching that happens after a party loses. Um, so it, after 2016, then we have hillbilly elegy and, oh, you know, we're, we left all these people behind and, you know, maybe they have to be reincorporated. The white, the white, you know, working class needs to be reincorporated into, uh, the democratic party. And how do we do this and all that? And they do all this, this soul searching, some of which is, is, uh, just sort of 
being a tourist in in a uh, you know in the the realm of the other and getting to to play around and we can talk about you know treating people as essentially uh, emotional commodities. You go hang out in some diners in in you know Western Pennsylvania or you know. Uh, West Virginia or in Wisconsin, and then you know get to feel like you're 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 cool if you're a New York Times reporter or Vice reporter or something like that, um, and all that ended up being just kind of a waste of time and and and, and bullshit. Um, there there was some stuff that was I think useful that came out of it. The the realization that. Um, there are a lot of people voting clearly against their class interests um, and not just for Trump, but for Republicans in, in general and in, in many of these places. And then you can ask, you know, then you can start approaching it dialectically. So why, what, what's going on? Why are they doing this? How did they become so alienated from the democratic party? Um, unfortunately, I think that a lot of it turns out to be stuff that is, is not, it's not going to be redeemable, you know, um, you're not going to reach the bigoted um, watches Fox News all the time, uh, anti-immigrant person who wants to hang on to their their you know not just a, a reasonable <clears throat> you know set of guns like a a sidearm and a shotgun for hunting or something like that, but wants to walk around you know larping in in combat gear, uh, uh, you know pretending to be a tough guy or something like you're not going to reach those people they're 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 gone you know they they were never there and, and any dialectical approach you take other than them having an emotional crisis you know yeah uh is not going to make any difference and they're and they're going to look at their their run down you know rust belt um boarded up town that now has all this stuff going on because of bad health care and, and meth and things like that. And they're going to blame it. <clears throat> they're going to blame it on the cultural decline caused by the, the Democrats and the universities and, and pick whatever other things you want to throw in there. So you're not, you're just not going to get those people, but you can reach other people who are not as far along that spectrum and pull them out of it. I don't think that there's any sort of like, I think institutions do a terrible job at, at reaching those people. It winds up being something that happens much more at the lower levels, right? It, personal interactions. Um, and actually, the, the, you know, the, the talk about anarchism kind of fits in here. If, if, if one way of looking at anarchism is taking, taking the um, sort of like governing norms off of what we have to do. So the anarchists can be inconsistent in a way that, that somebody who belongs to an institution or a movement can't be, right? And those people who allow themselves to be inconsistent and to have tensions within them that are often dialectical can go and talk to their, their um, you know, red state uncle who could in fact be, be voting uh, for, for a different uh, candidate the next time around and not just presidential, but also, you know, local elections and stuff like that. and could be turned over to, to seeing uh, a different set of alternatives. They can reach them if they sit there and actually spend time with them. And this, this comes back to the Hegelian thing again. If you treat other people as if they're worthy of recognition, um, which sometimes involves like sitting there and, and nodding along with their bullshit, <laughs> which, which isn't even their bullshit. It's, it's somebody else's right. bullshit yeah. that they bought into and, you know, not being a dick to them about it. And, <laughs> um, 
then, you know, gradually applying sort of what they call, you know, relentless pressure consistently applied, um, not rising to, to, you know, different jokes and stuff like that. I, I think that has the potential to reach people. But that doesn't get done very often. That's always like a, a sort of personal thing um, rather than, than an, an institutional or movement thing. Right. I, don't know, I, I look at these things in more of like a, I think that, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm a, I'm a materialist, but I'm in a broader sense. Yeah, not a reductive materialist. Then like, you know, dialectical materialists or what have you. I mean, I think that historical materialism is a good tool to analyze things, but I'm more so looking at like the material all the way down to the very basic, you know, just like the post-structural is looking down. Okay. They're, we're breaking it all the way down to language itself. And what are the material factors that have given yeah. rise to this specific language or like to borrow, like what Foucault did. Um, okay. What is the historical development of, concepts or identities and so forth yeah and so i'm curious how that how the hegelian dialectic can be utilized for a more broadly to where we're talking about you know sort of at the macro level rather than the specific like the individual psychology yeah i mean doing those sort of material analyses always takes an awful lot of time and and work and so you have to balance that i think against um you know you could say pressing needs right foucault could do what he was doing because he was incredibly well supported and funded and had this prestige working for him and um people applying foucault in, in contemporary settings and sociology departments, more, more sociology than philosophy, they've, they've done a lot with him, are often not quite so well, well healed as, as he was. Um, but yeah, so, so that sort of research, if it can be done, is really, really helpful. Um, being able to do it it, you know, so Foucault, you could say, well, he wasn't beholden to the institution and all that. Yeah, that, that's right, because he was lucky to be in the right place at the right time to be able to, to, to do that sort of thing. Usually, most of us, it's, it's a bit tougher. <clears throat> you know, um, things usually come with strings, but that's okay. Uh, you, can, you can recognize that um, so long as you're not, like, you know, being required as you, you know, as you get funded by the Cato Institute or something like that to push a straight libertarian line or something along those lines, you're, you're probably going to be, be fine. Um, the question was, how do we do things on a larger scale, right? Yeah, and I think um, in particular, I don't know, maybe this will help give you a little bit of context. So I think a big concern of myself and my, my audience would be from a kind of a left leftist perspective is, is there a real kind of liberatory project in Hegelian dialectics? And if so, like, what does that look like? Or um, I think that's a big question that I'm curious about. And I, th I know that my, my Hegelian friends are as well. I mean, there, there, there you, I think you have to talk about, the difference between Hegel in his time and what he produced and then what we could draw from it for the present. So Hegel in his own time was, you know, essentially a progressive. And um, 
Now, you know, Marx, of course, criticizes the Hegelianism of, of his time, and he uses Hegel as sort of a, a boogeyman for, for Hegelianism, right Hegelianism in particular, because Marx is a left Hegelian. Um, they, they use, you know, <clears throat> that to say, well, he wasn't really progressive. This is what progressivism looks like. But, but Hegel, in his own context, is very progressive. And the dialectic is a progression um, that that takes place at a lot of different stages. Hegel was m- much more optimistic about it happening in Europe than, and perhaps America too, than anywhere else in the world. But I don't think we have to buy into those those assumptions um, on, on his part. And so, you know, Hegel's project itself gives us this kind of blueprint of how things how things um, got better and better or more and more um, connected. And then, and then also um, where things went off the rails, like you think about absolute freedom and the terror. Um, he's he's you know, looking at the French Revolution and how um, the Jacobin movement you know, brought about all these, these other issues and then what, what happens after that. Now, what can we do with that in the present? I don't think we can take the phenomenology of spirit or any of other Hegel's works and just um, put them as, as a kind of blueprint of where we ought to be going. Hegel was wrong about the end of history. Um, a lot of things have happened since then. And I don't think we can do the sort of, uh, there've been a lot of Marxist recuperations of Hegel um, over, over the years, it's, it's yeah. not something new. Which I, I find this interesting, too, because I think it's sort of like a retreat to Hegel because he's well, more it's fundamental. A, it's always a retreat to, to this Hegel or that Hegel or this Hegel. It's never like a retreat to Hegel himself. Um, it's, it's always what they can get out of it. So some of them, it's really crude, and it's like, the, you know, I mentioned the Hegelian three-step. Yeah, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, you know, and then the, the synthesis becomes the thesis and all that. And, and I, you know, some crude dialectical materialism is like that. And that's really convenient because it's super easy to teach. But then when you actually start to apply it, you're like, wait, what, what is the antithesis here? And how, how does the synthesis actually come? It's just like a mystification, right? Yeah. It doesn't really help you out. Right. So instead, you could think of like what, what's going on in Hegel's works as a set of um, set of different stories that are tools for being able to make sense out of what's going on in a particular situation. So some people, you know, they have the, the master-slave dialectic, and that's their one tool, and they're like the person with the hammer who sees everything as a nail, right? So who's the slave? Who's the master? And, you know, there may be some situations where the master-slave dialectic is actually what's going on. But there's all these other dialectics. It, just think about the phenomenology of spirit. There's all these other dialectics going on where if you've, if you've followed them out and traced it out, you can say, holy shit, this is what's happening here. And it ain't the master-slave dialectic. It, this, this person over here who's preening about, you know, what a great, um, you know, radical they are, they are really Hegel's beautiful soul. Now, what do we do after that with this sort of person? Then, then we can look at Hegel and we can say, well, maybe there's no intrinsic, inherent connection between all these different stages the way Hegel thought there was. He needed that to be the case in order to like get his project off the ground. But we could be more flexible with it and say, um, how do we deal with people who are essentially just, you know, 
talking a good game about social justice, but aren't going to do anything when it, when it impacts their actual pocketbook or free time or stuff like that. And they're also like managing to suck up the available discussion space because they've got so many Twitter followers or uh, a YouTube channel or something like that. What do we do in that case, right? How do we get other voices in there? And that's that's maybe where uh, we start thinking about other Hegelian concepts. Like, okay, what 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 other things are being generated as opposition to this? How do we boost them? How do we develop that that further as a genuine alternative? Um, I think that's that's where some of the potentialities of the Hegelian dialectic come in. Not so not as a not as a blueprint, not as a program, but as a set of tools. And and we should you know we shouldn't be afraid of mixing it with other things. There's nobody needs to be an orthodox Hegelian, you know. Right. See the the debates I'm often in are with Marxists or people that are more Marxist oriented, and they're saying that you know, the state is required and so forth. And that the state through this dial, this Hegelian dialectic or dialectical materialism, it will realize eventually this, like these, these contradictions within society or the movement or what have you reality, I guess, if you want to yeah. say it broadly, are eventually going to tease themselves out. Rather, and, well, how the hell is that supposed to happen? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think, <laughs> see, to me, I think there's a die. If there is a dialectical movement of history, yes, there's no, always, you're always respond like, okay, so we're always responding yeah. as new initiates into the human race. Here's, here's something to oh, think about. So Hegel, again, this is, this is where like reading the philosophy history is, is particularly good. Hegel does think there's this dialectic, right? And, and things have progressed along in certain ways. And so um, the state is, is a part of that for, right. for Hegel. <laughs> Um, but there's no guarantee at any given place or time that the dialectic is not going to get caught in a cul-de-sac at that spot and that it won't happen, so, you know, it won't right. progress somewhere else. So yeah. this, this particular state could turn into, um, you know, a corporate run, uh, crony capitalist uh, quagmire of, of gridlock and everybody getting screwed. There's no guarantee that like say America, for example, it has to like keep on. Um, I, I actually, I think we're, we're actually in a terrible position right now because we've, we've, we've budgeted, you know, so much to, to military things that we'll never see any return on investment back from. And everybody else has, has suckered us into being the world's policemen um, where, you know, and, and we're not spending on, on things that really would be, good like infrastructure and healthcare and you know uh, a more rational education system and you know we're, we're going to get passed up and and hegel would say well yeah because you 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 went into a cul-de-sac you went into a dead end you got really really good at certain things and history passed you by um so there's there's you know, for the Marxists out there, there's no guarantee that any particular state will tease out these contradictions. Right. It, can, it can turn into a mess. Um, and, and the other thing I'd say about that, too, is the state is not the main um, community entity that, that controls everything. Corporations at this point in time should be understood as having uh, an agency that um, oftentimes states lack. Think about the big five, you know, with Google, Microsoft, Facebook, 
um, Amazon and who am I leaving out? Um, <laughs> I can't can't remember, but they all of these these tech companies operate like states, uh, somewhat parasitically within within states as well right. within the EU yeah, within within America. Um, sometimes against states like Google and China having its beef, but they have a massive power. And from a Hegelian perspective, they are effectively something like a, a state. They're these massive entities that that uh, set policy and affect the, the world in, in the, the decisions that they make you know Hegel is, is very much about uh, practicalities uh, you find out what an idea really is when it gets put into practice and then it always turns out to be something different than what you originally thought it was um, so so the you know You've got the states. You've got you've got uh, massive corporations. There's there's other things that would have to be taken into consideration as well. Um, and there's you know there's there's no guarantees for any of them. There there is no automatic end of history, um, as Hegel thought. Right. Yeah. That and that's one thing I wanted to kind of clarify. Do you do you feel like Hegelian dialectics implies a sort of a telos or teleological aspect? Because I get that impression with my sort well, of crude understanding of Hegel. Yeah, that's a good. So that's a good question. Hegel himself thought that there was a definite, like capital T telos to history, and it was human freedom and and the development of a community in which all of us would be recognized and recognizing in turn, and life would not suck for ninety five percent of us the way the way unfortunately it has through most of human history, and I think that's you know it's a nice idea. Um, and he thought that things were sort of inevitably moving in that direction. And you can see the, the right Hegelians and the left Hegelians disagreeing essentially on the question whether um, it was, you know, like already in process or whether, whether there needed to be some radical readjustments to that, that process. But Marx's, you know, sort of idyllic utopia that was supposed to happen at the end, that's very similar to what Hegel thought um, the, the end state of history is going to look like. It's just they, they disagree about how precisely you're going to get there and what you have to focus on. I think that's wrong. Um, I don't think that there is any end of history like that that um, we're inevitably moving towards. Right. <laughs> the signs seem to be the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but there is teleology, let's call it with teleology with a lowercase t, in everything that, that we're, we're doing and surrounded by. I mean, not like the coffee that I'm drinking actually has its own inherent drive to be pleasing to me. That's, that's all silly nonsense. Um, but the coffee exists in the way that it does and is available for me because um, of a vast network of, of things that are teleologically driven that allow me to be sitting here drinking it. Uh, and I'm drinking it in part because I'm addicted to caffeine and, and, you know, like to have it to make me happy when I'm talking on a podcast with somebody, right? All of those are teleological. Um, what we're doing right here is teleological, aiming at probably not just one single telos but a number of them you know part of it is is engaging in dialogue why are we engaging in dialogue to try to sort some things out that's a telos right so everything is in, imbued with teleology the question is how do these teloi or yeah no that's not right tele <laughs> right? how do they how do they actually um how do they connect up with each other, interfere with each other, or reinforce each other, or stuff like that? 
And you know that's that's where again dialectics can can be useful. Um, a telos that you have in mind as something like an ideal to realize, that's an idea that then you try to put into action what Hegel calls handel or comportment or action or something like that. And then uh, that action itself, there's all sorts of antinomies that show up because of it that, that sh you know, show us, for example, why people are always going to snipe at you if you're trying to get anything done. Um, any Anytime you do an act, it's always going to be imperfect and not fully consistent, but it's actual, you know, the, 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 the rational has to become, as Hegel says, real. He's, he's not actually saying the, the real is rational already. We have to transform the real to make it more rational. And in the process, we often figure out, and here's where like Lacan could come in, just how screwed up we are and how, how irrational we right. are a lot of the <laughs> yeah. time. And then it reflects Absolutely. back on us, and then we sort of readjust. And, and that's, that's the dialectical process, you know? Yeah, he, let me pose this to you. So my interpretation, and again, this is very crude, not having delved into too much Hegel, is that, Yes. Okay. The idea that there is constant, the, the contradictions within the universal are always present, right? And that tension uh, is what moves things forward. But I, like I said, I don't think that there's this teleological aspect to reaching like this universal spirit that Hegel's yeah. kind of getting at. It's more I like, don't think so either. <laughs> right. It's, it's more like, okay, so, the sixties happened and there's a reaction against that. And then there's a reaction against that and there's a re and so on and so on ad infinitum, but we're never, yeah. re we're never reaching some place where we're more fully free or like this ultimate. I mean, I, I think that we can, we can still, we can talk about a better and the worse. Um, we never reach like the end point, but we can, we can certainly say, so think about like um, putting, putting aside, uh, those belonging to racial minorities. Let's say we're just talking about, you know, the uh, white Americans, working class, because, you know, blacks were, were systematically shut out of this through redlining and things like that. Um, there, you know, in, in the middle part of the 20th century, there certainly was less income inequality and there were more opportunities for people to um, get an education, further their, their, you know, their, their, their desires, live, you know, the ideological American dream of a refrigerator, a car, a house, all, all those sorts of things, sending the kids to summer camp, right? Now, it wasn't completely like that, and there were a lot of terrible things going on, like segregation in the South and, you know, um, similar things happening up here in the North as well. Um, but, we, you know, if you compare that to the, the condition of millennial uh, right now or, or of uh, Generation Z, and you think about all these different indices, how, hard, how easy is it to get a, a remunerative job? What do you have to do in order to get it? If you actually make the, um, what used to be a safe bet of going to college and getting a degree, is it actually going to pay off for you? Um, we're, we're in a position that's worse. And it has gotten worse from generation to generation. My generation, Generation X, uh, was the one that where the, the cracks started to show. The boomers had, you know, not all boomers, but the boomers in general in America had it quite well. And there are all sorts of, you know, economic reasons we could dig into having to do with what we did with, uh, uh, you know, sort of corporations and capitalism. But as a generation, they had it quite well. My generation um, 
was the first where many people would not be able to buy a house. They were just effectively priced out of it. And an education cost a lot more and loans were um, more onerous. But it wasn't that bad. The millennials really, really got screwed, you know, by comparison. And what's going to happen with this current generation? I don't know. The ones who are now in college that we're teaching, um, many of them. I mean, I, this came up in class today, or not today, uh, earlier this, this, this last week with some of my students who were talking about the notion, notion of a social contract. And they looked at me like I was from Mars. And they were <laughs> like, why would we buy into this society? You know, and I wasn't going to do any of the sort of like, well, you know, you've benefited so much already, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Because I know a lot of that's bullshit yeah. for them, you know. And I also didn't want to play devil's advocate. I don't believe in that, that stuff. <laughs> anyway, I think they actually are pretty screwed. Um, and I feel bad for them. And, you know, it, it's reached the point where quite a few of them are. That's the rational thing to do. To If, if you're not going to be again, we go back to recognition. If you're not going to be recognized as, a, as an actual human being, but you're just going to be looked at as an opportunity for monetization or to be pushed around or to be corralled into one thing or another, uh, to be farmed out for, for gig labor or something like that, if nobody's actually going to look out for you, why the hell would you buy into to that society yeah, and mean, its absolutely. ideals? You know? yeah. And so, so now we've reached a sort of a cusp point where... <laughs> You know, I think that's that's going to be a, a real issue. Absolutely. I, I, let me. I'll tell you a little bit personal anecdote about myself. I mean, I let's see. So I was. I'm like 37. I was born. You know, I grew up in rural Texas on a on a cattle ranch, <laughs> believe okay. it or not, and so forth. And of course, went to college because that, that was what that was the pathway to you know wealth or what you know what, yeah. what you were supposed to do, right? go to college. Um, I'm about to graduate into 2007 economies. Oh yeah. Yeah. Economy's getting a little bit shaky. I'm like, uh, you know, so I decide to go to grad school <laughs> and, uh, kind of my focus was in mass communication, but specifically kind of what they called new media at the time. So things like, you know, Twitter, Facebook, yeah. I don't even think YouTube was a, a thing at that point. But sort of that stuff was just beginning to emerge and gestate. And so I thought, well, hey, that's a pretty good angle. This is a growing thing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I graduated into 2009 and just never have been able to even, I had maybe, I've never been able to get a job directly doing social media uh, uh, of any kind. I yeah. worked for other companies that had a, I was eventually worked my way into a social media kind of thing, but it's been mostly jumping from job to job that I can actually get. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which the, is then you're never getting, it's not a career. It's just jumping from job to job wildly between industry to industry. And it's like, I'm 37. I have no, there, the potential of, of having a home is pretty much non-existent. The potential to have a, even a family, even though granted, I probably, I don't know that I'd even want one, but that yeah. all of those possibilities are sort of precluded. Probably, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So of course, radical politics are going to, of course, I'm going to be drawn to, well, let's overthrow the system. And I think there's a lot you could of people. Be, you could be drawn to that, or you could also go the blame the immigrants route too, though. Right. You know? But uh, so that, 
I don't know. I think that has to do a lot of with my own radicalization. I think the younger generations and I think even beyond the millennials, the kind of zoomers are really, really yeah. uh, getting more radicalized. And it's, it's really funny that I see more young people engaging with theory and philosophy than I think it's probably ever before. There's a huge, huge kind of sub community or subculture of people that are into that, which I think is, it's fantastic. Yeah, and I think a large part of that is because we do have essentially this, I mean, it's partly commodified by the big tech corporations and by all sorts of other, you know, would-be large tech corporations, but we do essentially have a a huge commons, an intellectual commons in the internet, and what it's, you know, so I'm, I'm about 10 years older than you, but you're, you're old enough to remember a time when the internet didn't effectively oh, yeah. exist, right? Oh, and so, or or when Wikipedia was terrible, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or there weren't any videos, uh, on, like you're pointing out, on YouTube to go and, and take a look at. Um, and and so the Zoomers, they they have access just by virtue of you know when they're born to this incredible um, wealth of of. Uh, information out there that it that doesn't follow the typical academic structure you know like you know when i actually had a philosophy class in high school but it was terrible um and and most people don't get introduced to philosophy in any way other than like in world civ they'll they'll tell you to memorize you know plato socrates plato aristotle it's like a test question or something like that right um so now you know there's this this vast world of information that they have access to. And I think that's part of why, and, and, and things connect with each other too. So if you, if you think about the YouTube algorithm, if you're interested in, in a video on Hegel, well, they'll probably suggest, in addition to suggesting some, some terrible stuff to you, they'll suggest some other resources on Hegel for you, you know? Um, so they, they have some better prospects, but they are so screwed in so many ways. And, you know, it, it, some of my colleagues that I graduated with, um, going back to the thing that you're talking about, essentially the inability to acquire equity, and not just financial equity, but social equity. Um, I had friends who graduated around the same time as me with a PhD in philosophy, got themselves, believe it or not, tenure track positions, even though the competition was incredibly fierce, but happened to be unlucky enough to be on the East Coast or the West Coast. And they would say, I'll never have a house because what they pay a professor, I can't afford to buy it. Um, there's, you know, some people can buy houses, but I'm not one of them. I guess I'll have to rent the rest of my life. And then being able, not being able to build that, that equity, which for, you know, most lower middle class to middle class people is the, still the vehicle by which you, you accumulate equity. It's not a particularly efficient one, but it's, it's one that's available. Either that or your retirement account. Those are the two main ones, you know? Um, yeah, which I have zero of that as well. So yeah, yeah it's going to yeah. be. It's going to be a bad situation. I've, yeah, and, and, and it's it, like you're pointing out, though, it's not just financial, too. It's also, um, you know, they, they, they have this euphemism, portfolio career now for the sort of thing that you're talking about, where you go from place to place to place, and you never accumulate the social capital 
to be able to like easily transition into the next thing where you've got like people, you know, headhunting you and saying, Hey, we want you here at this place and we'll give you great benefits and relocation uh, package and all that sort of stuff. Right. There are people that that exists for. Oh, they, they aren't us. Right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, and I, I, I had a colleague, um, again, in an academic setting, when I was working at Fayetteville state university, um, she got hired at the same time as me and she had gotten her degree a little bit earlier than, than I had. So she'd been out teaching full-time for nine years. She'd had seven positions in nine years, which meant that almost every year she had to like, first of all, get on the job market, which takes an incredible amount of time. Um, that, that, I mean, that's another thing, non-academic jobs, it's still a big pain in the ass. You got to like jump through all these hoops. It used to be you could just like walk in with a job application and say, here you go, you know. Now you got to go online and do all this, this stuff for a job that might not even exist at the end of the search process. So she had moved all these times. Um, every time she did that, it was like introducing herself to a whole new community and picking up from the ground up, um, working with different standards, um, and, uh, you know, losing money in, in moving. Because, um, you know, they weren't paying for, for that sort of thing. And, and a after a while, she just kind of got burnt out. You know, it, it takes its toll on people. And then the, the, the unfortunate thing is when you get burned out and you, like, step aside and you're like, ah, I need to take some time for myself – the system doesn't care. They'll just hire somebody else in, in your place, you know? Um, so unless we, unless we move to the point where we, we get some safety net, um, and I, I, don't, I don't see the corporations offering us a safety net. So, you know, we come back to American politics. What's the other agent that, agency that can offer us some sort of safety net that provides us with some, some recognition? It would be the government. You know, so maybe maybe once again we gotta uh, elect somebody like Bernie Sanders and other people who can support him in, in the Congress and get get some of these things passed. So when you get thrown aside because um, you're no longer productive, you're not totally screwed. Otherwise, why should we expect these younger people, younger than you or I, to like not look at this and say, "Well, this is bullshit." <laughs> you know, why should? I why should I buy into any of this stuff? You know? Yeah. I mean, the, the contradictions are so, I mean, I, I think it's a very tenuous time in, in the sense yeah. like the state I think has never been more fragile just because of the diffusion of internet technology. But at the same time, like there's this dialectical aspect is it's never been more fragile, but it's also never been more powerful. Yeah, when it comes to like coming down on people. At the, yeah, at the same time. But oh, I yeah. just don't think there's any hope. Like I'm not even, uh, I mean, I may not vote. I, I don't know how I feel about that, to be quite honest, as an, anar as an anarchist. I do think at this point, um, electoral politics is, is really a dead end. And there's, it's a time for direct action. And if we want to take, if we want something, we have to literally like, if you want to defree the kids and the, the camps on the border, then organize and go free them, not wait for Elizabeth Warren or one of these politicians yeah. to decide it's public, you know, public relations approved to, to do things. Like, I, I think, think that's, could, we're at a crisis point, I think, to be quite Yeah, honest. I think you got to do kind of like a multi-spectrum thing. There's nothing that precludes you from 
pursuing both direct action and also trying to elect people. Um, voting is pretty simple to do, you know. Um, I mean, some states have made it quite tough for people to register to vote. Usually, you know, it's, it's the Republicans doing that, which tells you exactly what they think about voting. Um, but, you know, there's no reason you can't, you can't pursue both. And, and, you know, there, there are some places where your vote doesn't really matter. Um, Texas largely, if you're, if well, you're to the, if you're to the left of uh, Texas is, is, is purple though. You know, um, people are looking at Texas as, I mean, 10 years ago, nobody would, or not, not 10 years ago, because it was Obama era, 20 years ago, nobody would have thought that Virginia and North Carolina could be flipped. Um, but, you know, they have been, and um, Virginia's probably going to stay blue, North Carolina's in play. You know, I, one of the cool things about being here in Wisconsin is because Wisconsin was important in the last election, um, that amplifies your, your, if people know that you're from Wisconsin, it amplifies, like, say, your Twitter thing when you weigh in about something political, because they'll be, oh, shit, the Wisconsin people think this or that, right? Um, and, and, you know, there, I think Texas is not a swing state yet, but it's, it's not um, Idaho, you know? It's, it's really frustrating to be on, I mean, I think even if you're, like a progressive Democrat here. Yeah. But yeah, well, I think we're, I mean, the, the contradictions are such that voting like that stuff takes so long and the system is fundamentally designed to not have radical change. And with capitalism becoming what it is, the system is totally, it's like the arteries are clogged. There's, I don't think that's true. Voting is just, Oh, kind of a waste of time. Like how, even if Bernie Sanders would be elected, then you need a thousand Bernie Sanders across the country in Congress and governorships, et cetera, et cetera. And even at that point, you're barely going to mitigate the, what capitalism has become, which it's, I think it's capitalism itself has accelerated into this hyper real phase to where it's totally like the finance capital aspect oh, yeah. is totally yeah, divorced it's on its own logic, totally divorced from the actual productive economy that, that people are working well, in. And even, even what the big tech companies are doing is its, its own thing. That's not satisfactorily um, addressed by, by older models of capitalism either. You know um, each of them has each of those big five companies has these imperialistic ambitions of like being our entire life, you know, um, and they, they, then they, they, you know, they fight against each other every once in a while. Facebook will bring out something that's going to be a this killer. You know, Amazon does that too. And they spar with each other. And that's, I, I don't think that a lot of people have managed to really wrap their heads around that either. Um, but it doesn't mean that we have to, um, completely despair about engaging in politics. It just means that we probably won't, we won't see any great changes come out of it. Um, but not voting doesn't do anything either. You know, I had an interesting conversation years back with this guy, Paul Griffiths, who's, who's an Augustinian theologian. And we were discussing Alistair McIntyre having written a piece about why he wasn't going to vote and he couldn't find himself, you know, able to vote for the Republicans or the Democrats. And um, he was writing a column why and, and Griffith said, well, I'm not going to vote either. And I said, 
why not? And, well, I can't vote for either of these, these parties either. And I, and I said, so you're, what, casting a principled non-vote? And he said, yeah. And I said, how the hell does that do anything? Nobody looking at the results is going to see that, you know, you didn't vote right. because of this or that. You know? It's the same thing as the guy who, like, woke up too, too late because he was hungover and didn't show up to the polls. You know? <laughs> Decided it, it just wasn't worth, worth the, the drive or something like that. Um, there's, there's no way to take this into account. People don't vote. They just don't vote. And it doesn't, that doesn't help anything either. So it's kind of, your, you know, you, you have the choice between making this absolutely minuscule contribution, probably at some cost to yourself, that has very little chance of doing much of anything or not doing anything. <laughs> and then if you want to do direct action, you can also do that. But you could, you could do direct action and vote or not vote, you know. True. So, yeah. I mean, it, I, I kind of wish that we had a system like that like in Australia where you, you have to vote and if you don't vote, you pay a fine. Um, but you know, you're never going to see anything like that here in the United States. Oh yeah. We'd be lucky to have a holiday to vote. I think here. That, no, that would actually be, that is something that's doable. Uh, if there's well, enough weight put behind it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but even some, see, I think even something as logical as that, and it's, to me, this is my critique of institutions is that's the the moderating effect of them is that even things like that or like marijuana laws or things that people really agree with the the procedural elements to manufacture that freedom are so weighty that yeah. it becomes almost impossible and let me give you an even more better concrete example you may not have this in Wisconsin but in Texas you cannot buy liquor on a Sunday period and you can't buy alcohol until afternoon on a Sunday. Even no, though we, we, we definitely that, don't have that in Wisconsin because right. we love to drink. Such an absolute, um, what is it, anachronism, right? Yeah, but yeah. Think if you tried to get the momentum to overthrow that or overturn that law in the, um, through the, through voting. Legislative way, process, yeah, yeah. It would be almost, you would drive yourself insane trying to organize the people to overthrow that. And that's why well, I think that just this whole bourgeois democracy thing yeah. is just kind of. It's interesting because Indiana used to have laws like that. And what ended up doing it in was capitalism itself. The, the, everybody wanted to be able to sell stuff. That right? is the only out is perhaps <laughs> yeah. if the top capitalists decide that they want to make more money, but even like, that's the crazy, that's the illogical yeah, yeah. Lacanian kind of contradiction within this whole system. Yeah, I remember being so angry. I, so my relatives, some of them live in northwestern Indiana, and I'd be there for Christmas or, you know, uh, Easter or things like that a lot of the time. And I remember being down there, and I, I was in grad school, and I was a heavy drinker at that time. So, um, me, oh, and actually, so was a lot of my family. And so, we, you know, we were like, well, we're out of beer, I guess. So we better go over to Fagan's pharmacy and get a, get us a, you know another case. So we go in there, and you know I pick up a, a you know a case of beer, and I think we had a few other things. And I go up to the front. She's like, I can't sell that to you. And I was like, Why not? I'm of age. And she's like, Well, because we got this Sunday law. And I was like, well, Where the hell are we supposed to get beer then? <laughs> she's <laughs> like, Well, I can't help you with that, you know. And we ended up actually driving across the border into Illinois to to go get some. 
Interestingly, too, with the, the marijuana thing. So, you know, Illinois has passed a recreational marijuana. Oh, yeah. That was pretty recent within the last several months, right? Yeah. And within five days, the state ran out of marijuana because <laughs> they, 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 you know, it has to be like manufactured. Right. They can't get it from Colorado or something like that. And uh, in Wisconsin, we don't have that. Although a lot of people downtown here in Milwaukee smoke pot, you can walk around and smell it all the time. They've effectively decriminalized it by not enforcing the laws. But toward, on the border, the police are pulling people over for anything whatsoever. And they, and they came right out and they said, we're going to do this. Um, if you come across the border and your taillight is out or you're going, you know, weaving or anything like that, expect that we're going to pull you over and then we're going to check your car for pot because you're not supposed to be bringing it across the state line. And I guess they netted quite a, quite a few people and, and uh, it's kind of a, kind of a big thing. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that we don't have recreational marijuana here in Wisconsin um, but it's probably because, you know, the, the legislature is gerrymandered, so the Republicans control things, um, at least for the time being. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting thing. I don't know how many, I don't know how much revenue they're, they're generating in fines um, from, from all these poorly informed drivers going down right. and buying, buying. Which is pot. more than likely work, see, the, and again, this is more than likely working class people yep. that are getting, this is like the, Everything getting externalized. This is how capitalism externalizes all its costs onto the working class is through fines and the police and like all that kind of bullshit tickets and whatever. But let me give you an even better, better anecdote on the kind of uh, marijuana issue is so the Austin city council recently passed or they were saying, Hey, we're not going to, uh, we're effectively going to decriminalize marijuana arrests but then the cops then the chief of police comes out and says no we're still going to enforce blah 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 which yeah so it's again it's like the overturning the will of the people like the city of austin the local city votes they pass something the authorities don't so i mean how am i supposed yeah, to operate? And, how and am i know, supposed to operate in legitimacy what is the legitimacy of democracy in this in this country or just a re representative government uh, yeah it, i mean absolutely it's it's, 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 it's interesting one of the things that's been happening uh in, in really the last 10 years or so is um and it's happening mostly in in places in the south that originally stressed states rights although it does happen in the north as well uh and, and states rights was all about local autonomy so you'll have um liberal areas that will pass something having to do with, you know, like, again, like marijuana enforcement or transgender bathroom rights or things like that. And then the state legislature will get overturn. together. Well, now they won't overturn it. They'll say, you can't make legislation about X, Y, Z. And then they'll apply it retroactively to that. Um, so they're not, they're not actually, they're not like going through the judicial process over, of overturning the law. They're, they're saying, um, local units, local communities cannot legislate about this particular issue that we're, we're interested in. So in Texas, you know, Austin, of course, is, you know, a uh, hard blue area. Um, it's not surprising that they, the, the state of Texas wouldn't come along sometime and, and assert um, no, local, no local autonomy for you, you know, right. and they well, have to do it for everybody, right? So it, it reinforces the things at the state level that really have no business being discussed at the state level. It really should be done at the local level. 
um, because these people are all for local autonomy when it comes to other things. Right. Oh, absolutely. I got even yeah. better examples. So they, this was maybe three or four years ago, there was an ordinance with the city. This was right around the time that rideshare companies, so Lyft and Uber were operating and the city passed an ordinance. Okay. If you want to drive for one of these companies, then you need to be registered with the city and like there's a background check, there's a fingerprinting process, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Well, the state overturned that. Yeah, and the go- our governor, Greg Abbott, is always on about, oh, the big government liberals or blah, 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 like all this, you know, he's kind of parroting this line about local autonomy and like against the federal government. But then we'll, of course, summarily turn around and overrule things like that. So, I mean... Obviously, yeah. like these material conditions that I'm existing, this is why I say, you know, anarchism, because look how the state is serving us. Yeah, look how voting and legislation and following the process, in quotes, yeah, what it's doing. There's no, like, <laughs> this has to be, there has to be something else. You know what I mean? We're running to the point where, like, it's direct action is, is the only outlet that we have to to, you know, take back our lives, I guess, or take back our own autonomy. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Sorry to rant there, but no, no, no. it gets me really, I, I mean, very, uh, very <laughs> high key about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, movements, movements, when they work, they manage to channel that sort of thing into something that becomes an institution, right? Which then comes with, with, with its own problems. And, you know, and this that, is kind of like a dialectical. So like, you, like yeah, we talked about, like, so that, okay, the movement becomes institutionalized and then the institution becomes the site of additional contradiction. Yeah. And, and there is no guarantee that at any, in any given framework that things are going to proceed dialectically, they can get stuck in, in just sort of a circle pattern or, you know, a quagmire and, and then just, not develop any further. Hegel thought that when that happens, development takes place somewhere else. And he's probably right about that. It just won't take place the way Hegel thinks that it will. So maybe, maybe the, you know, um, some of the accelerationists are right. And, and uh, China is where, you know, things are going to be happening that are eventually going to supplant us. I hope that's not the case. Cause you know, um, I sure wouldn't want to live under them, but you know, maybe that is the case. Maybe because we can't get our, our act together politically. um, That's what happens. There's no, there's no guarantee that any, I mean, Hegel thought that, you know, the, the, the Prussian state was, he thought that was the, yeah, I mean, there's no Prussia anymore. I mean, there's, there's still Prussia as, as a place, but, the, the current German state has, you know, gone through this uh, time of first German reorganization and the empire and then, you know, the uh, uh, short-lived Weimar Republic and then the Third Reich and then, you know, splitting and, and uh, democratic, you know, a democratic Germany and a communist Germany and then finally coming back together and being part of this EU. It sure as hell isn't what Hegel thought it was. Right. Actually, so that's, that's probably a good model for how dialectics actually, or the dialectical process of history laid out, right? 
is yes, there's these contradictions. Okay, the contradictions within the Weimar Republic lead to the Third Reich. The contradictions within the Third Reich lead to the divided Germany and so on and so on and so on, right? So there's never any... Sort of, except that like, it wasn't just that like the contradictions within the Weimar Republic led to the Third Reich. It's the contradictions within the, the Weimar Persians. Republic right. and what the French are doing and what the British and Americans are doing and um, seeing the, you know, the Russian civil war taking place and, and this, this whole borderland over here and the, you know, the fry Corps arising. There's all these different complex factors right. getting all blended in together there, you know? Um, I mean, the Nazis uh, uh, narrative was, you know, fairly simple that they were a response against the degeneration of the, uh, the uh, Weimar Republic, but that clearly wasn't everything that was, was happening. Right. Um, Which was so funny too, because the Nazis were very much like this, what's the word, like hedonistic, like that's sort of what they were. The conservatism was right. Was about like against this kind of anti-Jewish, like intellectual, like Berlin and the, before the Reich was pretty progressive and yeah, they were a weird mix. I mean, they, they drew people in who were really hardcore, like, you know, austere types and they drew others who were essentially hedonists like Göring, you know, um, and, and managed to pull them all together through hating Jews and, and, uh, uh, a reaction against, um, liberal democracy in general. Um, and, you know, hating, hating what had happened because of the, the French, you know, the French occupied the, the Ruhr and humiliated the, the Germans. Um, you know, in a way, it's too bad they didn't keep it up. You know, they didn't have the, the, the nerve at the time to, like, when, you know, it's interesting. If you, if you ever have the time, you should read uh, William Shire's, he, he's famous for the rise and fall of the Third Reich, but he wrote another companion book that's called The Fall of the French Third Republic. And it details why, why in 1940 the French lost, and the roots were, you know, 10 years prior to that. They had the opportunity to nip Hitler in the bud, and it was the French generals who were essentially afraid to do it. That France had Germany surrounded with all these alliances with, with you know, other powers, and they, they didn't follow through on it. And the reason they didn't is because of political gridlock, very similar to what we're experiencing today. It was all very short-sighted, and uh, anything that you did, the opposition would go after you for that. So they didn't want to lose um, you know, French lives, and... Um, but they, they could have easily have come in. And, and Hitler was, was very worried that the French would, in fact, follow through on, on their, their commitments and uh, um, go after them, like when he was taking, taking over Czechoslovakia. Yeah. We're coming right up against, I think, two hours here, Greg. So I don't want to take, <laughs> monopolize your entire day, although I am having – this is definitely fun um, – I guess in terms of Hegel, do you have any other, I guess, suggestions on kind of what to pursue or if you have any kind of final thoughts, I guess, in terms of whether it be dialectics or Hegel at large or master slave or anything to kind of maybe put a, put a bow on things? I, I, I just, yeah, I would just reinforce, you know, Hegel is a very difficult 
person to read. And it's not, it, sometimes it's because of the complexity of the concept. Sometimes he, he's just not a great writer too. Um, so I, I would say as with most other philosophy texts that um, readers should take off their shoulders the, you know, the, the uh, sort of self-imposed demand that they like fully understand and get everything out of the text. You're, if, you, if you only understand half of what you read in Hegel, you're still making progress. You're still getting something out of it. And you can always go back to it again. And, and you know, um, so I, I guess just don't get discouraged. What other, uh, so you did mention that Hegel, Hegel is one of your, is he really one of your favorites or? Do you have any other he, thinkers I mean, you kind uh, of admire quite a bit? Yeah, Hegel's like in my top 10. Um, Aristotle, um, Epictetus, Plato, um, they're certainly in there. I, I really like Marcus Cicero, uh, who I thought had a really interesting project that he was carrying out. He's kind of underrated. Um, I mean, who else? I, 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 there's so many other thinkers that who I, I enjoy. I, a lot of them are people I disagree with. I, I enjoy reading Hume a lot, even though I think he's wrong on so many different things. Um, you know, Descartes, similarly. Uh, like quite a few of the existentialist thinkers, like Nietzsche and uh, Lev Shestoff and Kierkegaard and Gabriel Marcel. So, he, you know, he's, he's sort of up there in the the pantheon for me but he's he's not like the guy for me gotcha okay what about a maybe for a future episode actually i just had this come come into mind is what's your uh how familiar are you with um god why am i not leibniz but the other monist oh, spinoza spinoza yes of course yeah i mean I, I i had to study him and i i've taught him a few times um i'm not a big fan but He's, he's interesting, you know, we can certainly talk about him. So, yeah, I think my, for me, my interest in Spinoza primarily is because I'm a Deleuze guy. Yeah. That, that end of the spectrum. And so Deleuze's take on Spinoza or like him incorporating Spinoza's thinking is an area of interest for me. And I have been told by other people that Spinoza has got some really fantastic stuff. He's, he's good. I mean, I think there, there are some people who are really, really big fans of Spinoza. Um, I mean, strictly speaking, if Spinoza's right, there really isn't any you or me. Uh, we're all just, you know, modes of this, this infinite substance. Um, As an agnostic, that's really comforting to me. That's like the only <laughs> comfort I've found is just that, that idea to me is, yeah. I don't know, there's something about it. But yeah, we could certainly talk about him. Um, but before we, <laughs> sorry, before we go ahead and, and wrap up the recording, I, I do want to give you an opportunity to, to plug your social media feeds oh. and <laughs> okay. whatever you want uh, to share with us. Where any you know your videos, your your YouTube channel, whatever you whatever you want. Yeah. So I, I mean, the place to find me on YouTube is Gregory B. Sadler. Um, actually people can find most of my stuff just by typing that into Google and all sorts of different things will, will come up. Um, on, on Twitter, I'm philosopher 70, uh, because I picked my Twitter handle years and years ago without even like really thinking about anything like SEO. Yeah. Right. And stuff like yeah, that. Um, I have a Facebook page, which is again, just Gregory B. Sadler. Um, 
And I mean, I'm on other things as well, but less frequently like Quora and Reddit. Um, but I don't, I don't really understand how to use Reddit effectively. So, you know, I don't do too much there. What else? I've, I've got the Sadler's Lectures SoundCloud uh, podcast, um, which is mostly just short lectures on, on classic and contemporary texts. And I don't know. I think that's pretty much it. I guess, I mean, we should probably point out the, the, the 30 minute Hegel series where you're, am I right that you're going through Going the through the entire phenomenology. Yeah. It's been stalled for a while cause I've been so busy teaching and, and, uh, uh, with other projects, but I need to get it back up and running. We're we're at we're in the six hundreds of an eight hundred paragraph book, <laughs> so probably get another year and a half to two years if I if I really grind away at it. Yeah, that's that's a hell of a project for sure. But great yeah, if I if I'd actually thought through the amount of work I <laughs> right. No kidding. Uh, but thanks again, Greg, so much for joining sure. me. Uh, it's been a fantastic, really, really fun to uh, to chat with you today. Oh, good. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed this. Also, just want to reiterate, you can help me out by uh, checking me out on Patreon listeners at patreon.com forward slash podcast CO Cooper Cherry. Check me out on Twitter at podcast CO Cooper on Instagram at podcast underscore CO underscore Cooper underscore Cherry. And uh, this will be podcast care of Cooper Cherry or maybe even the machinic unconscious happy hour signing off for the week. But uh, thanks again to Greg Sadler. You're welcome. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity.